Welcome to Soccer Talk, a podcast about soccer, mostly in Iowa, presented by Kick It Forward. Kick It Forward is a positive disruptor to the Iowa soccer community. Thanks to our sponsors, Scott Insurance Services and Michael Keener, Attorney at Law. You need legal help? You need insurance help? Those are the two to contact. That's right. Welcome to the show. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, Iowa soccer supporters. I'm Ben Brackett here with my good buddy and co-host, Blake Sievers. Sievers, what's up? Hey, Ben, good morning. You know, um, these are kind of becoming routine, and there's not a whole lot new going on, is there? No, I'm, we're getting, uh, getting a lot better at the Zoom stuff, as long as our internet stays uh, strong, which isn't always the case when you're out in Runnels, but... Uh, Hopefully it will hold strong for our intro here. Yeah, and we'll see how good of an editing job you're able to do because uh, definitely I had some issues for a, for a brief moment there in the middle of our interview with Dan. Yeah, um, and so that's we've got a Dan Cataldi on today. Dan's the executive director for Iowa Soccer. Um, kind of, I guess I would say the new executive director. He's been there for uh, 18 months or two years or so, um, and it's it was a good conversation kind of getting an update on the state of soccer in Iowa. I would agree, Ben. And, you know, we've known Dan for 20 years, maybe, maybe not that long, 15 years or so he refereed us and whatnot. So it's, um, it's cool to see him still being involved in, you know, a guy leading the state. That's a soccer guy as well. Yeah. I would, and I would say the only real mistake we made in our interview was not, asking him to elaborate on what it was like to referee us as young players. Cause I'm sure we would have gotten a couple chuckles out of those stories. He's yeah. He strikes me as somebody I mean, who would remember. Well, I mean, I, I know some of the language and some of the things that were said uh, probably were, would not be able to be repeated on the podcast. No. And I'm, I'm terrible. Like I don't, I don't remember referees very well. Like just that I just don't like them when I'm playing. So I don't remember ever like a specific instance of being ref by him. Um, oh, any, I remember like I said, often. Anybody. Yeah, I remember chatting? like just because he was. Yeah, he would like he would like not in a bad way though. He would, like, had a personality and like he understood. So like you could you know like I said say things to him and he got it and would like it was I don't know, you know he was always I don't know one he was good but then two um, you know he would always like handle it as a. I think he understood the moments and whatnot. Maybe that's what I'm trying to say and wouldn't, yeah, wouldn't make sense. it about himself. Well, then maybe he wasn't one that I disliked. I have no idea. Um, I guess uh, regardless, I definitely enjoyed the chat with him. Um, and I thought it was – he had some interesting opinions and insight. Um, so hopefully you guys all enjoy it as much as we did. Should we get to it? Let's get to it. Nice. Welcome, Dan Cataldi to the pod. Dan, how are you doing today? Fantastic. It's a beautiful day. 95 degrees, just what we ordered in June. Yeah. It's funny. Uh, we always talk about how like the state tournament is like the hottest weekend. And it, if we had had a state tournament, it would have been the same yes. situation. Would have been miserable. Uh, well, thanks again for coming on. Um, you know, usually we assume that every listener has heard our pod several times. Uh, but Blake always has the same question to kind of kick us off. All right, Dan, so uh, is this the first time you've ever been on a pod? It is my first time on a pod. I've done live radio, recorded radio, live TV, recorded TV, but never a pod. 
Whoa, Ben, this is a different element, isn't it? I love it. Are you nervous, Dan? I am not. I think I can <laughs> handle you guys. I refereed you both as players, so I'm sure I can handle you in this seat. Oh, well, we'll have to get into that. I'm sure you've got some interesting uh, feedback on that. Uh, usually we just kind of like start out no matter who we're talking to, kind of give us your, um, you know, sort of your origin story, talk about how you got into the game, uh, and then, you know, maybe kind of wrap it into what you're up to now. Sure. So, um, like many people my age, I grew up playing, started when I was, you know, five years old down in the Kansas City area, actually grew up in Olathe, um, and just played my whole life um, through high school. Uh, had an opportunity to start refereeing when I was, I don't know, 12, 13, and um, continued with that and actually uh, gave up playing at one point to, to focus on refereeing after I got through high school. I turned down some opportunities to play a little college ball and um, instead focus a lot on refereeing and actually did that at a very high level as a national referee opportunity to work with players that I would never in my life played with. So that was kind of nice. Um, so I, I stayed with that uh, for many years until I was injured and forced into retirement. And then on the soccer side, I took over as a state referee administrator in Iowa. So overseeing our referee committee um, and did that until I had the chance to move into the executive director position at Iowa soccer about a year and a half ago now. So kind of a culmination of uh, a lot of career stuff and, uh, and soccer stuff that lead me to this job. We may dive into this a little later, but since you kind of brought it up, uh, best player slash coach you've ever um, been involved with as a referee. Yeah, like refer as a referee? Um, yeah. So as a player, when I was five and through my whole playing career, I played with a kid named Scott Vermillion, who went, oh, yeah. played for the national team a little bit, went to Virginia on a full ride. He and I played together and were friends from the time we were four or five. He played in the MLS for a while until he got hurt. So he was the best player I played with, even though it was starting at five, and eventually he was far too good for us playing many years up. Um, as far as uh, referee, um, no question in my mind is Brian McBride, who is uh, cool. uh, one of my hero, personal heroes as far as a player. I love watching Brian play and had the opportunity to do um, Chicago Fire against Malaysia from Warsaw, Poland at, in Chicago at Toyota Park. And uh, Brian got in that game near the end of his career. So. No question, um, Brian was my favorite player to ever have uh, ever have refereed. That's pretty cool. Did he give you any stick? Actually, it didn't. Um, a few years ago, or about a year ago, I saw him and I actually went back to him and, and I commended him on his. You know, afterwards he came over and just thanked the referee crew for being there and you know his experience level. He, he and they had lost that game. Um, you know, he didn't need to do that, but it was just a very kind gesture. So I, I that always stuck with me that a person of his success at that point in his career still took the time to come over. And his words were actually, thank you for being there, being here today. So it was a cool moment. So I, I enjoyed, enjoyed him uh, immensely. He always strikes me as kind of a class act. He definitely, that was, I've had two interactions with him now, that conversation and the game we refereed, and I would agree with that. That's interesting because Pol- uh, Chicago's got quite the Polish base. So I'm assuming uh, the surroundings. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it was, it was a pretty cool crowd. I mean, it was a lot of fun, you know, obviously, um, you know, where, where that stadium in does, is doesn't help their crowds. Um, so, you know, it wasn't packed like you'd hope, um, but it certainly was loud and, and a lot of people there and a good time. Good envi- Definitely a good environment for soccer. I had fireworks going off and all that kind of stuff. So. Well, so before we move on, then tell us, like, who's the, like, who's the most obnoxious player you've ever had to ref, like, just constantly, or coach maybe? Oh, it's, Hopefully it's not one of us. Well, I, I, there's too many coaches to name, and I'm not even going to try. Um, Player-wise, and we're friends, has got to be Chris Hamburger. Chris, <laughs> Chris, Chris talked nonstop, um, 
and, and always in a good nature and, and we're still friends and it's um but he talked nonstop for 90 minutes of every game I ever did whether it did Drake or the Menace so. yeah we know this guy I thought you were <laughs> gonna say Matt Nickel <laughs> no not Nickel definitely not Nickel could have been yeah. Matt Bourne though he, he definitely had a few things to say <laughs> <laughs> I said that's it's like I think that's super interesting is um, the personalities of referees and players on the field is and, and off the field. And we've talked a little bit about, about this with um, Sean Geiza about. I know he got that beers at the table and I'm just sitting here <laughs> at home with a water bottle, you know. <laughs> we'll get yeah, a beer he, out. Let's go, Dan. <laughs> <laughs> Impromptu. <laughs> I just say, like, it's interesting, the, the, you know, the, the relationships you have with people uh, on and off the field. Um, and especially now as we're adults and, um, you know, you see some of these older guys, uh, referees around, um, I think, Ben, that we can relate to, like, oh, We've definitely had run-ins with them before, and now like you see Dan Waskell, you know, lying in the fields up in Altoona and whatnot. So it's it's uh, all comes full circle. Yeah, it's a small community. When you're when you're at that level of a referee working with those level of players, I mean, it's not like there's unlimited supplies. So certainly a small small community, and we, you know, whether it's at the college level or at the you know, U.S. soccer level or high school level, we all get to know each other pretty well. There's just no other option. Yeah, I wish I would have thought of that or known that when I was a little younger. <laughs> uh well, so why don't you, you you talked about you just uh stepped into the job now for about a year and a half um and obviously you took over for uh longtime executive director harold kaler so that must have been an interesting transition you know no matter how good or uh bad he had done you're just coming into a, <clears throat> a situation that was totally uh you know somebody else's so maybe talk about what it's been like to take over over the past year and a half and some of the maybe your accomplishments and some of the things that are kind of on your plate now. Sure. So, yeah, I mean, I'd known Harold for a long time. Um, again, small community as the state referee administrator, I was appointed by um, Iowa soccer into that role. So I met with Harold regularly. Um, and I knew, um, you know, he was planning to retire. Obviously he'd been with the organization more than 20 years and was the first employee and, it, you know, grown it since the, uh, since the, or mid nineties uh, from kind of what it was, you know, what soccer was in Iowa in the mid nineties to what it is now. So certainly taking over an institution um, that he built and I'm always cognizant of that as we look to how, as we look to the future as to the things Harold's done. Um, but I was fortunate to have the opportunity to really ease into it um, with some overlap time. So he could you know, show me some of the things he's done uh, and, and really, you know, assume and not just kind of be thrown to the wolves. And I still am able to reach out to him and have lunch with him and, um, asking questions when we run into things I haven't seen before. Uh, you know, I, I just finished going through the first time through everything. So I'm starting to go through things the second time. Um, and then we run into a pandemic. So, um, so now we're doing things for the first time ever again. Um, yeah. So it's him up for advice on that, right? Yeah. Right. Like even in 20 years, he didn't have this one. So, um, so it's been a, it's been a real you know positive experience that I was able to you know, have all of that uh, transition time and not just come in and, and do things. So I was able to, you know, we have a very strong team at Iowa soccer, and that's the first thing um, I recognized when I got there is the people that work there um, are all very passionate, all have a lot of experience. They all know the players. Uh, so, you know, able to, to kind of jump in and, and leave them to do their jobs and not have to worry about fixing things, really being able to just look at the organization as a whole and say, what can we do differently? So we've modernized a few things. We've tried to go a little more paperless. Um, you know, done some different things in the way we do kind of the day-to-day -day operations that hopefully are easing some of the time, like, you know, expense reports are changed, things like that, uh, to make it easier for the staff to dedicate more time. 
Um, we've looked at the budgeting process and just done some things like that that have, have kind of been more operational. Um, but as far as kind of what we've done as an organization, I'd say the, the thing that um, I've been most excited about is an opportunity um, with the referee committee where they provide part of the funding for a new position we created, which is our manager of referee services, um, where we brought Hadiat Tietze in, who is also a former national referee who refereed in the MLS. Um, and to really, you know, one of the complaints I always heard as the SRA and others is that our referee program needs help. You know, they're just, it's a bunch of volunteers that are trying to do a lot. I mean, my wife will tell you, I spent hundreds of hours on it, but you're still a volunteer. And so to put somebody in there to kind of professionalize that and work with the referee committee um, and then work with all of our referees and our clubs to develop more referees and, and develop some programs um, has been something that we've started to really see, uh, you know, some benefit as we've um, increased the coverage on games in, in our leagues and some other areas where where it's, it's just an innovative thing that nobody else in the country had done. Uh, and so that partnership, I think, is really a, has uh, kind of started down the path of doing some things that are innovative and new and, and hopefully will improve the game in Iowa. So on that note, Dan, um, one of the – and correct me because I know I'm not – this isn't going to be correct. But the, uh, the governing – some governing body uh, made some new rules for referees where the costs went up or something, uh, where – it's new referees uh, are struggling and again yeah. i don't know enough about it would you kind of give us the background of the issue and then kind of where it's coming from and how it can be solved if if yeah there is a solution? so this just goes back to it's u.s soccer um so it's u.s soccer federation and it's uh the way referees are are registered in the state so referees in iowa register through the state and then the iowa referee committee takes a portion of that money and pays uh you know sends it to u.s soccer similar to the way players pay a registration fee that goes to the state and a portion of that goes to the um, U.S. soccer. And that creates an operating budget for the referee committee in Iowa to do things like send referees to events, um, you know, that they need to go to for exposure or host the Terry Vaughn Referee Academy, which is one of the largest instructional uh, referee clinics in the country where we bring in guys that worked in the World Cup um, and women that work in the World Cup and get hundreds of referees every year. So that process has gone for years. And so the states were um, required or the states were in charge of kind of that certification process. Um, and with some of the changes in risk management, um, you guys are all familiar with safe sport and some of those requirements that are federal uh, regulations. Another piece is making sure that we require background checks for all referees. Uh, so every referee 18 or older now needs a background check. And so the U.S. Soccer Federation is taking that process over instead of leaving it to the states. And they're administering a, a uh, an expensive background check that's about $30 and it meets the U.S. Olympic and Paralympic Committee standards, which is important because the U.S. Soccer Federation falls under that, but it was far more expensive than what a lot of other um, states were, were conducting. And so now every referee that's 18 or older has to pay that $30 up front before they can even move forward. They have to get that background check. Um, and then they have to undergo safe sport training, which is new to them. Uh, you know, that hadn't been a piece in the past that they had to do. So that additional time, so now they're spending more money um, and having to invest more time just to do the same thing that some of them have been doing for 25 or 30 years. And so there's a lot of frustration. It's also all online for recertification, um, which some people aren't really excited about. Uh, so it's just kind of that transition year of moving from the states kind of overseeing it to really U.S. soccer administering it through the same, through the same platform that coaches register through now, um, that same online system. And so that has caused a reduction. Um, a lot of referees decided not to re-register. Uh, the real question is, as we look at a reduction in number of referees, which is um, systemic throughout the country, 
how many of those were actually doing games? We know we had a lot of referees that would pay money every year to referee, and then they would never actually do games. But now that the cost is a little bit higher, um, maybe what we've lost are the people that weren't really doing games anyway. And so we'll, after this next year, I think we'll get a really good assessment and understand how far away are we from having the number of referees we really need to do all of the games that, that we have. Do you think that's uh, a mistake by, I mean, U.S. soccer gets uh, criticized quite often. Um, do you think that is a mistake U.S. soccer has um, applied? Um, no, I, I think it's tough for them because we're talking about risk management issues, and those are really, um, those are really sensitive topics, and one you, you really want control of. Um, you know, we've seen all of those concerns, you know, with risk management and all those other sports, and soccer is trying to avoid that. Uh, so I, I appreciate why they did it. Um, you know, maybe they I think in retrospect, maybe they could have phased it in a little, little bit differently. Um, you know, some states were already doing these intense background checks. Uh, so for their referees, it wasn't as big of a surprise. But in Iowa, we didn't have that cost. So it was kind of new to the to the referees. Um, so is it a mistake? I don't know. I think it's going to be a learning curve. You know, five years from now, it'll just be the way things are. Um, and so those numbers will rebound because everybody that, you know, all the 13 or 14-year-olds now, this is just how the system is for them. And so when they turn 18, they're going to expect it um, versus those that have been doing it for a while. And, uh, you know, just to decided they're going to stop it kind of as a protest for being asked to do these additional things. So I think no matter how they went about it, they were going to lose some numbers. Uh, so I think it's going to be a little short-term pain, but I think, you know, long-term it'll all rebound and get back to what it was. Fair enough. Sounds like a big job. Uh... Why don't we, uh, speaking of big jobs, talk about just how the pandemic is sort of, uh, I don't know, uprooting the world that we all live in, but specifically the soccer world. Um, you know, maybe just talk about the challenges and then, um, you know, kind of what kind of support are you providing for the clubs? or how, I mean, what's your role in that, really? Yeah, you know, obviously it's, it's we're, we're finding our way every day. Um, we at Iowa soccer, we initially, you know, kind of when all that news broke with the NBA suspending, you know, kind of in that one week period, you saw it go from us kind of thinking about what we're going to do to all of a sudden you have to act immediately. And so we went in about 24 hours, went from like most of the states, going from really looking at what could possibly happen to having to make a decision now and, you know, immediately suspending all activity for the first, you know, couple weeks of the season just to give us time to understand. Um, and then we spent, you know, with USU soccer and US soccer, and in our case, US adult soccer, spending a lot of time um, looking at the national picture, uh, knowing that we wouldn't be able to resume until they cleared it anyway. Uh, and then working with each club to kind of understand what it means, you know, knowing that there were, as, the, as it became um, evident that we were going to have to suspend and miss the spring season. I mean, we made that decision fairly early uh, just to allow all of our clubs to refocus and know that they don't have to plan for an abbreviated late spring season and summer activities and moving tournaments and everything else that could happen. You know, we made the decision to move to the end of May um, fairly early compared to most states. And it, part of that was in response to our club's request to just make a decision that they can kind of focus how they move forward. Um, and obviously moving to the end of May was at the time seemed a little, uh, you know, kind of a, a risky decision, but one we felt was the best for clubs. Um, but it turned out that that was certainly within the realm of expectation. Um, and so, you know, our role has really been just with every club. We know they're going through financial difficulties. Um, you know, losing the, the opportunity to, to play a spring season hurts them. Um, it hurts Iowa soccer as well. All the state associations have lost revenue from leagues and player registration. Uh, and so 
providing resources to our clubs. We send out a weekly communication on Wednesdays to our clubs um, with updates from us. Um, we've provided resources for kind of business. So like the paycheck protection program that was out, you know, we sent that out um, very early on to all of our clubs, um, to presidents and, and um, executives. You know, did any, did any clubs have success with that? Uh, you know, I don't know. I know. So most of the state associations did. Um, I, I know several clubs applied. I have not asked specifically if any have actually received money, but um, did I say of, have to? Did Iowa soccer have to apply as well, or did yes, you? Yes, we yes we did apply, um, and it was one of the it's, you know one of the, it was critical for us to be able to maintain our staff and and kind of without dipping too far in reserves. Um, so it was pretty critical for our existence. Um, you know, as we got through April and May uh, with no revenue at all, um, to be able to meet our uh, our paycheck expense, our payroll, and our rent, um, even though we're not using our office, um, having that having those uh, having that money was critical. So. So we were trying to provide those types of resources to clubs to maintain kind of business operations. Uh, and then, you know, a lot of helping, uh, you know, Gareth and the technical team has done a lot of trying to um, move forward uh, with clubs and working with them for some preparing for when we return. So we're, we're turning the kind of focus now to when we return in July, um, providing one kind of some uh, resources for how you know, how practices should be conducted, how training sessions should be done. So don't, you know, no trade, no um, sharing tinnies anymore. Every player should have their own. They take home and wash. No sharing water bottles, parents in the cars, you know, those types of things. So we'll provide those resources in the next couple of weeks. And then uh, Gareth and Ross are working on, on the technical team, putting together how actual training can look, providing resources to a lot of our clubs. Like if you can only get eight kids out there with a coach, you know, how should that look? What, what types of things can you do and maintain social distancing if we're still at that point? So those are the types of resources we're trying to provide now. And hopefully, um, you know, hopefully all the clubs will come out the other side and, and we'll be ready for, uh, you know, we'll be ready for a good fall season. Yeah, understood that. I can't imagine having to deal with that, especially, you know, relatively early on in a, in, in a job. So uh, it sounds like you guys are doing uh everything you need to do talk about the tryout um, sort of situation, the, you know, the bid day versus the intent to play day. Um, I've just read about it a little bit and I don't necessarily know how else you do it, but I'm just curious how, um, how that decision-making process went into effect. And then also just, it, it's something we've talked about with other clubs before. Is that something that we'll look to, you know, try to change the way we do tryouts going forward? Um, you know, is this like an opportunity to, I don't know if it reforms the right word, but you just right. look at it a little bit differently. Well, I, I think to the latter point, um, not just tryouts, but everything, it's a chance to look at our, you know, our, our league and say, Hey, in the fall, now, if we're going to change things, now's the time to look at what opportunities are there to make changes. Um, yeah. You know, reducing travel is a huge focus in the fall. Um, you're trying to reduce costs to families that have been hit by this. So I think in everything we're doing right now, we're kind of in just surviving short-term mode, but I think it's an opportunity to examine everything we do. Um, you know, people have said we're coming out of this, the world's going to be a different place. And I think that's going to apply to the soccer world as well as we look at, you know, what are the long-term effects and, and where do we need to make changes? So tryouts are certainly an area where we could have that discussion. Um, you know, the process this year, uh, you know, it, it's kind of a, it's it's unique it's difficult it puts clubs in a difficult situation it puts families in a difficult situation at times um you know there's no no ability to have kids come together and train and, and see them actually perform uh so you know you have to take clubs and, and those making decisions have to rely on past experience um you know 
information they have, whether that those players played for them or if they played against them and new kids are, are registering with that club. Um, and so the intent to play is just, you re, you know, you sign up for a club. It, it means you have no commitment to the club. It's no different than signing up to go to tryouts. As we've gone through this process, while we changed some of the words, really the idea was that for the parents and the families, that the process is identical. So you register your intent to play with the club. So it's just like signing up for tryouts. You can do that with three or four clubs. You can try out for as many clubs as you can fit in. You can, um, you know, register that intent to play. And then on bid day, if you, you know, sign an intent to play for maybe three clubs, you can uh, take your bid and make the determination on uh, which bid you want to take. Uh, no different than past years. Um, so the idea is that for the families, um, the only difference is instead of tryout period, there's club work days where they can go through all those names they have and try to figure out the best way to go forward. We know clubs are going to do a variety of things. You know, we have smaller clubs that may only have one team at an age, and so it's a pretty straightforward process. And then we know we have others that may have three or four teams, and you know, they may elect to do uh, bids to their player pool instead of assigning an A team, a B team, and a C team right now. Um, and that's up to each individual club to how they kind of decide to move forward with that. It sounds tricky. <laughs> There's no easy way. I mean, you know, it's the, the hardest one, you know, is what about a kid that comes, what about a kid that comes from out of town, uh, you know, that right. nobody knows who he is. How do you know where right. to assign him? Which is why you may see some more of those clubs putting in, you making a pool bid instead of a specific team bid because they need to assess them and there's just no good way to go about it. Blake, you got something? Is there, uh, is there anything clubs can ask these players? And it's interesting because like, we're out of it now, but like, can a club say, hey, what if they get 10 kids that sign up that are goalkeepers? They have no clue who they are. Um, can they, like, what's the contact period? Give us some of the, those restrictions if there are any. Yeah, uh, you know, we're, we're, we've put out a guide recently um, that kind of lays some of that stuff out. They can certainly, they are allowed contact with the player to ask questions. Um, certainly players can submit information um, what we don't, what we explicitly don't allow is like a live video training session. And we, we don't allow clubs to um, solicit or require video submissions for players. But if a player has video, they can submit it um, without being, you know, without it being required or solicited. So we, and we've sent that to all parents that they're allowed to submit that. So um, essentially they can ask those questions. If they have a previous club, they are allowed, you know, they can reach out to the previous club. If they moved in from out of town, they can call their old club. So they're allowed to do some. Uh, there are some limitations on it just to, you know, prevent excessive kind of recruiting and things like that, um, which we have to watch. So, Fair enough. Like I said before, that just sounds like a tricky situation. I don't know how you yeah. do it any better, but it's just tough. We looked at, yeah, we looked at other states. And there's, I mean, there's, like I said, there's no great way. There's no perfect way to do it. There's going to be some guesswork. You know, and to be frank, we're hopeful that most kids just go back to their original club um, and let it go. But the things we did, we did build a guide for the clubs and we built a guide that we sent to every parent of a select player. So about 7,000, I think, um, parents received this guide on this year's tryouts from us on, on how it'll work in the differences to most years. So we're trying to at least get, get the information out there so everybody can get through it. We know we're going to run into issues and you know, we're ready for hiccups and, and we'll be prepared. We're just planning to use common sense as best we can. What kind of other things are states doing or other states? Are they doing anything differently or is it pretty similar? I don't think that, uh, you know, I think there's, there's variations um, slightly, but I think it's pretty similar. Um, I wasn't involved in, in building some of this, you know, with, with Gareth and Craig and Ross and Candace. They've kind of built sure. a lot of this with um, their roles. So 
I know we looked at um, you know what's Nebraska, what are Wisconsin, you know what are what are other states doing that are that are putting these plans together, and you know there's it's it's all the same in that for the most part it's no con or you know no no physical contact and, and you know kind of limiting the the amount that uh, clubs can have interaction with players. So similar, I mean, there's differences in the way they're going about it, but pretty similar. Understood. Well, you guys, sorry, Ben, if I can jump in here on that note before we move on. Um, are you guys, for the return to play and all that, are you guys uh, going off guidance from USU soccer? Is there a governing body to talk about? And if there is, like, are we in a certain phase right now um, or not? Yeah, so we, um, we have used U.S. youth soccer for our youth side and U.S. adult for the adults, um, and then U.S. soccer's also got some guidance out. Uh, the problem with those organizations is they're national organizations, and so they're really hesitant to say, you know, we're going to not allow return to play until June 15th because in some states like Alaska, they're up to full, re you know, they're up to the ability to return fully to competitive soccer. And so it's it, early on they were putting out some no activity um, requirements and Obviously, with USU, they've canceled all their summer events, um, champ you know, all the championship series stuff. Uh, so they've got to a point where they basically turned it over to states, and each state um, controls their own return to play. And so we looked at a lot of factors. Obviously, I listened to the governor's press conferences nearly every day. Um, I so does Blake. Yeah. So I sent in requests from, you know, I, I know some people in that world just uh, from my past life in, in disaster response management. And so... I had a couple people I could text and ask some questions about what was coming um, to kind of help us understand what to expect uh, from the governor's office. Uh, but we also looked at more than that. So we engaged a group from the University of Iowa Health um, or Hospitals and Clinics um, and the VA system, uh, in particular one doctor, Dr. Uh, Stacy Klutz, who he's an essentially a biochemist um, with a PhD in biochemistry and a, a virologist by training, but also an MD. Uh, so he's uh, does a lot of work, and he worked with us to build modeling um, and provide kind of a, his guidance uh, along with the team behind him at University of Iowa to, as to when he felt it was safe to go back and, and to bring kids back to play based on all the projections from, for instance, the University of Washington model that a lot of people referenced, but, implement, but using Iowa data. So when we created our return to play, um, we actually did a, a, a call for all of the uh, club leadership, and then... Um, and had Dr. Klutz present uh, as to why, how we got to July 6th as our return to play date and why we felt that was safe. Um, and then we provided, we created, we took that video and actually we sent that out, a link to that to all 35 or 40,000 uh, parent emails we have as well to, to share with all of our membership as to how we came to this decision, um, the science behind it, the medicine behind it, rather than just following. At the time we made that decision, we didn't have any guidance at all from the governor. Um, so we were really working just on the medical and the science piece of it. Uh, so we, we took that as an important part of kind of how we construct our return to play. Uh, and so then to phase it in, we're in phase zero now, which officially means that uh, you can train, or I think we call it phase zero, um, but essentially you can train um, virtually. So as a club coach, you can virtually you know engage a team and do that kind of thing it's just no personal interaction no physical interaction with players whether it be a meeting or um, training when we get to july 6 we'll move up to the next phase and in that case we'll um, you know allow what we expect to be small-sided training heavily conditioned um, you know limiting social distancing uh, and then continuing to move along into a kind of a more normal train training phase and then into a competition phase 
And really, as we get to July 6th, the, the thing our clubs want is they didn't want us to kind of have this moving target. So it's really difficult for clubs to move up to June 15th if we move to that. So we're keeping it at July 6th. But if our curve, you know, the kind of epidemiological curve gets us ahead of where, you know, we think it'll be, what it means is we'll phase up much faster um, and get back to full competition much more quickly than if we're where we expect to be on July 6th. So we know we were trending ahead, for instance. So we're still hoping we continue to trend ahead and that while we're back July 6th, we can go to the next phases a, a week apart instead of maybe two weeks apart. So the hope then is for a fall season? Yeah, we're absolutely it. So at Iowa Soccer, we have ODP tryouts scheduled for August 8th and 9th, or 7th and 8th, whatever the weekend is there. Um, we're still keeping those on the books and hoping um, and planning based on the models we have that we'll be back um, and able to conduct those tryouts. Uh, and then a full fall season um, following with, you know, club tournaments, club events, those types of things, state cup, um, president's cup, and all the events that we would normally have throughout the fall. So when we talked about uh, changes that this might allow. Um, would this be a kind of opportunity to look at uh, utilizing the summer a little bit more as a, a training time? Yeah, I think, you know, we traditionally um, are pretty quiet in Iowa in June. You know, once you get past state cup, unless your teams are going to regionals, you know, some teams will go play one last tournament in June. Um, you know, June and July tend to be the quietest months, especially right. July. Um, and this month, this year, we expect to be back training July 6th. We, you know, because we've been off so long, we expect all the clubs to launch training really around July 6th and have more training time leading up to the fall season. Uh, we, we discussed trying to move the season up, maybe adding a week on the front end, things like that. Uh, but we know a lot of our clubs have events they plan to go to or host. And so, sure. you know, at this point, we don't plan to move our fall season just because there's a lot of other things on the calendar that may interfere. Uh, but um, certainly, it has been a discussion we've had uh, for some time about how we could better use the um, Iowa weather we have and the best times to play. Uh, you know, there's just a lot of complicating factors when you look at scheduling and calendars and tryouts and um, you know the national it, championship it, series. Everything the, gets in the way. Yeah, just the history, right? Just that it's always been done a certain way. So right. Um, so we no, ha we haven't gauged that. We're also taught, you know, there's there's a good opportunity with recreational play too. Um, you know, recreation is traditionally a spring and a fall season, but we've talked about can we do some summer recreational programming as well and, and give that option for kids that don't want to be year-round competitive, but maybe they have a spring sport and a fall sport, but they don't have anything in the summer, you know, after baseball ends. Um, and so there may be a chance to fit in some, some summer recreational programming. Uh, yeah, so there, there's different options there that we definitely want to look at. Cool. I just find it, I mean, I'm a big proponent of changing the calendar a little bit. And I find it funny, the first few weeks of March are always rained out for the most part. And we sit here, you know, like you said, June, mid-June, usually everything shuts down. And yeah, it's hot in Iowa in June and July and August. But I mean, with the people rent lights, there you can go early in the morning. Uh, we use some of like the nicest times to not play soccer. And then, and, you know, it's always cold at the end of November. Uh, mid-November beginning of November there's snow there's always cancellations then so um, for what for my uh, whoever I am you guys should keep looking at changing the calendar <laughs> it's a uh, you know it's one of the things obviously I've learned a lot in a year and a half here and it is extremely complex to, to move the calendar around with all the other things that have to be met um, around seasonal years and you know the other events that we need to make teams available for so it's, it's very complex but certainly something there is interest in um, you know, it's not an overnight solution. And that's, no. I was surprised no. at the complexity behind it. 
well, hopefully all the clubs having the opportunity to train in the, the month of July will uh, spur them to just maybe continue to do that <clears throat> in the future. Um, and, and are they allowed to, uh, to train? Like, I mean, is what's stopping the club? Is there like a dead period instituted by the state or dead time? You mean in a normal year? Can't do anything. Yeah. Uh, no, we don't. Um, uh, we don't provide, we don't, Iowa soccer. Does, I mean, now we do because of the non-sanctioned activity, but in a normal year, there's no, um, there's no dead period. I think it's just a natural time when clubs, when the club leadership, the club coaches take time off. Um, you know, when they, when they step away, um, you know, it's just kind of that break in the season before they get into the fall. Uh, you know, so it, it, that's really a club by club decision. We know some are going more year round now in Iowa. It's definitely a, we're seeing more and more of that year round activity, but it's, it's not an Iowa soccer um, imposed sanction. Yeah. The last group I got together uh, when I was coaching, we, we started on, you know, the, the day after July 4th or whatever, the 5th, and it didn't help us, unfortunately. <laughs> um, <laughs> it starts as the coaching, probably, Ben. <laughs> Most likely. Um, well, so I, I sort of missed my segue earlier, but I wanted to just ask that about the calendar. Um, one of the other things we wanted to talk about was the ODP program, or uh, I guess that that's redundant, but we want to talk about ODP. Um, you know, both Blake and I had what I would say were pretty good experiences over the years participating in the ODP program, but it, it seems it's changed a lot. Um, when we were playing, it seemed like the focus was very much on whittling down a group of players to go compete at regionals and potentially uh, have the opportunity to be selected for the regional team or the national team. And that, you know, it was very much like that was the point. And now it seems it's, it's maybe gone a little bit more to uh, a larger pool and to develop a, a bigger group of players. Um, and so, just kind of want to know if that's like, you know, is that intentional? Is that um, more something that's just a, a byproduct of the, uh, the way that soccer is developed in the region, you know, as far as like the development Academy and some of those different things. Um, anyway, just wanted to talk about it a little bit. It's something that obviously as former players, uh, it's of interest. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, when I grew up playing in the you know late eighties, early nineties, ODP was the thing, you know, the, yeah. I mean, that's everywhere you wanted to be. Maybe that's why I never made it because um, everybody else was trying to be on ODP also. But it's uh, it's certainly an important program um, for us uh, and for USU soccer. Uh, it has evolved over the years. Uh, you know, there's, you know, back then that was the way you were discovered and, and you know, kind of went up the chain. And now with so many other ID camps and other things, it definitely changes the landscape. And so ODP has to evolve. Um, and it's in the process of another evolution. Um, obviously, we have Ross Moffat, who I know you have to talk to, um, leading ODP and really looking at how we can uh, give more, uh, you know, give more benefits and value to the families, uh, as well as getting them to events where those kids can be seen. Um, you know, now with the with DA going away, uh, but the new MLS academies stepping in, uh, some other programming stepping in. Um, U.S. Youth has signed an agreement with MLS Soccer, uh, the kind of player development agreement that will focus on ODP uh, in a lot of ways. Uh, we're seeing in the next couple of years, we expect ODP to have a lot more uh, focus on that player identification. And I think that's the, the question is to what is the value of ODP? And really, it's, it's the opportunity to, to have experiences and identification. And that's what we're, you know, what we're looking at. So there's definitely a larger pool of players now. Part of that is there's more events. Um, that, that ODP is going to. And so if you only have a team of, you know, 20 in an age group, you may not, you know, enough kids may be busy with club duty or other things where we can't get a full team. So having a, a bigger pool, especially at the younger ages, um, 
has allowed us to enter more events and get more kids in more um, more opportunities. Uh, so I think I think Ross has done a lot. Ross has been there just a little bit longer than me. So he's he came on. I think his first day was roughly the the first day of ODP tryouts. You know, two cycles ago. So he kind of learned, and then this year he put together a whole new plan, and then got halfway through it, and um, has done a lot of things, uh, some amazing things with player, you know, getting players um, on Techni and other kind of player development tools and providing some of that. But clearly this year he didn't get the full year. He was hoping to kind of see some of the changes he put in place. Uh, so it'll continue to evolve next year. Um, you know, he's, he's changed it up for kind of the first three years have one experience and then the older three years have a slightly different experience and a different focus on what they're trying to do. And, and I think we'll see, continue to see some growth in, in how ODP works. But I don't think we're going to get down to kind of the old, I don't think we'll ever get back to what it used to be where it's the true national team identification model. There's just too many other ways kids are seen. Well, so that's a good kind of uh, connection to the Development Academy, MLS Academy that they're putting out. And we looked at the map recently, and obviously Des Moines nowhere to be found, or Iowa in general. I mean, you know, let's leave Des Moines out of it. The state in general is, uh, you know, sort of flyover country. So how is that something that, uh, we address. I mean, you know, you, you talk about all the, you, you have, you have such a breadth, a wide breadth of uh, responsibilities and you're talking about the referees, you're talking about just building the game, you know, we're going to touch on facilities here in a minute, but then when you're trying to talk about, you know, how do you get like the elite player to play at the next level? You know, how do we go have players that are playing for the national team from the state of Iowa? I mean, to me, that seems like a, a pipe dream at this point. Um, well, it's just been so long then since we've had somebody of that caliber. Yeah, um, so I think there's a couple things. One, you've got to remember, um, from our standpoint, we're focused on all of our players. And so right. while we're talking that elite 0.1%, a lot of that's going to come down to um, the interests of those individual players. We're very fortunate to have somebody like Gareth in our office who's well-connected and is able to have a lot of conversations um, when we talk about individual players and um, you know help those individual players, whether they end up down at the Sporting Academy in Kansas City or they up in Minnesota, um, Obviously, the old IMG um, Academy down in Florida, we had a couple of kids down there. Um, so those individual kids at this point, um, their real only option, um, and this is kind of one of the downsides of the evolution of the game, is to go someplace where they're going to be, be at that high level all the time, almost residential. Um, as well, so far I guess as, maybe yeah. that's kind of the question is if, because I said that we hadn't been producing a certain caliber player. That's not correct. We have, but they don't end up necessarily developing in the state right and so i think um you know there's a process number one and we can all admit it iowa is a generation behind most other states in soccer um, i grew up in kansas and um in, in kansas city area in Olathe, and, and there we were a full generation ahead um, you know as a kid i remember going to the Olathe south Olathe north high school soccer game when i was seven or eight and it was a big deal um, you know, in here, high school soccer wasn't officially sanctioned until 95, which was my senior year of high school. So, you know, there's a generation. So I think we'll continue to see, you know, the difference between me is my dad went to a library, checked out a book to learn how to coach me when I was five. And, you know, I was able to coach my son and, you know, had a bit of experience in the game and understood some of the things we wanted to accomplish before they were, you know, and I coached through the academy level. Um, so I think Iowa will continue to, to move faster than other states just because we're in really the first true generation of playing and parents that are players coaching their kids you know it's been there kind of off and on but until it's really you know the the rule not the exception for the five through ten year olds um, you're never going to see that elite development just because there's so much that can happen in those years 
and we can't afford um, professional coaching at those ages for, you know, obviously. So, um, I, so I think that's the first thing is we have to admit Iowa's a generation behind a lot of the other states in the Midwest and maybe more if you look compared to St. Louis and Chicago. Um, you know, those are obviously long storied soccer hotbeds. Um, so I think it's accepting that, that we are moving and we're seeing that progress. And you look at um, some of our progress the last couple of years and, uh, you know, we've had two national champions in President's Cup, which is not the national championship, but it still is a pretty competitive level and a pretty successful event to win a true national championship. And then you have, you know, last year, uh, the Rush Girls team that qualified for youth nationals um, played in the National League at the highest level, which means, you know, excluding the Development Academy at that time, you know, puts them in the top, you know, 1% of teams in the country, probably. Uh, and so we're seeing some of those kind of, you know, those bright spots. And, and the question is, how do we make it more pervasive? How do those bright spots become more regular? Um, and I think we're seeing some opportunities now. More teams are playing in the Midwest Conference, um, which gets them more exposure to that higher level. Uh, and, and we'll continue then to, to, you know, bring that exposure back to the club and that atmosphere. And those kids will have more, you know, drive and incentive to get back there. And, and so I think that's going to be what it takes. It's going to take time. I think the coaching is coming along in the state. Um, I, you know, the players are developing. There's much more interest. I mean, you walk around and you see kids wearing jerseys now that you never saw 10, 15 years ago. Um, you know, seeing little boys wearing women's national team jerseys and kids wearing EPL jerseys, things like that. So I think, I think it'll come. I think that's the biggest thing is it just takes a little time without going to say, but it is. Yeah, I, no, I think you're right. The way you describe that, I mean, I, don't, I wouldn't say it makes me feel better, but it's kind of like, yeah, you know, it, I get it. Um, and I, it, you know, it was, I think a little bit different, you know, whatever, 20 years ago, cause we'd have a, um, you, you were forced to go play in some of these situations. Yeah. And so uh, we just, our players these days aren't maybe getting those, those opportunities. And that was going to, tangential question is you know how do you with all these different leagues and competitions and you know you talk about okay well the girls were at the the, the highest level but like maybe kind of the highest level you know not totally the highest level and i get it but and how are we ever going to know because it's not like they're playing against each other so is that just a problem you see overall in youth soccer is it's they're just like a thousand different entities trying to get to the same place yeah, it, it's the, the, you know, the way youth soccer has been fractured in the last 20 years, I don't think does anybody any good. Um, you know, when, when I was a kid coming up, you wanted to play state cup, you wanted to win that, you went to regionals. And if you went to nationals and won it, you were the best team, you know, right. no Even, question. And, and as soon as, two, you know, as recently as the mid 2000, uh, you know, like I think 2005 I went to youth nationals, refereed the, you know, 18 boys national final. There was no question that those were the two best teams in the country. There weren't 12 other leagues that were saying, you know, who, you know, that we might have the best team. Um, and I think, you know, in those days, you knew, you knew who the best team was clearly because they played on the field. And, and now, you know, with, with all of the different leagues, both girls and boys, and just the continual evolution, it's really hard to know. And I think that's where um, there's a lot of factors that go into it. And, you know, I, I struggle with the idea that um, a lot of these kids have to spend so much money to be at that level. You know, you can't tell me, you know, I listen to, people on the East coast or West coast talk about having to drive four hours to play a league game. And they drive by, you know, five clubs that are probably better than, or at least as competitive. Um, but they're all in a different league. And it, you know, and so are, we're doing the kids a huge disservice and we're doing the families a huge disservice um, by creating all this alphabet soup that, you know, makes everybody not know who to play and who the best are. And most of the time driving right past clubs that give you 
the competition you actually need. You know, maybe there's a very, very small percentage that that's not true, but even the TA when it started to where it ended up was not the league it was supposed to be when it started. No, the idea was great originally. It was. Um, you know, the, the only concept I have with the DA is it, it was too easy. Um, the kid, you know, again, when they were playing for national championships through USU soccer, those kids had bite. And when, when I refereed a lot of the DA games or I watched them, it was just about running around fast and playing hard. But playing certainly out of not the back. Reckless. Yeah, just playing, playing out, out of the back. back. <laughs> playing out of the back. It, but from a referee standpoint, let me tell you, that's my favorite team. The teams that play long ball all the time, you don't like. Um, well, yeah, because you're stuck just chasing back and forth. <laughs> yeah, right? yeah, doing doggies. Uh, yeah, so that's you know that's, those are always good. But it, you know, but the DA turned kids into just very technical, but not they lost a lot of that grit. And so the DA was intended to do great things, but it put these kids in this perfect situation. I mean, they had physios on site. You know, everything that you know they were living the pro life, right? And so you know. It, was it it was it was a great concept that they maybe made it too easy and not letting them play high school soccer where some of that you have some of that same grit you have to play you know going into your rival school is a different experience so yeah i i was so how do we stay real i mean go I'll ahead keep ben. going blake nope you're fine i would say so how do we stay relevant um and we talk we're behind we're a generation behind we're catching up but and there's all these other things how do we stay relevant and um kind of jump steps so to speak Right. Well, I think we are relevant. Um, you know, I think you see how we compete at a different level. Um, you know, when, when I, I attend youth regionals and president's cup and we compete much better now, you know, it used to be, it felt like when I'd go as part of the referee contingent, we would go and all of our teams would lose games 10 one. And now, you know, up and down the line, we're winning a lot of our games. Um, and so I think we are relevant. We're not elite yet, but we're definitely relevant. You can't come in and say, Oh, I was a team. We're going to walk over. Uh, for the most part at those competitions anymore. We're very competitive. And I think a lot of that is because our players are um, expanding on, on where they're playing. They're taking, you know, taking challenges. Um, you know, we're taking ODP teams to high level events that as a club, they may not be able to compete, but at ODP they can. They take that experience back to their club and then their club is going to high level competitions um, and being able to compete. So how do we skip steps? I, th I, you know, I think that's a difficult question. I don't know that you can skip the steps. I think you have to put in the work. Um, but I think it starts with the kids that are young now, continuing to build. So five, six, seven, eight years from now, you know, I think five years ago, and I, I haven't run any numbers, but if you look at regional performances five to 10 years ago versus now, I would guess we're much stronger um, in those events against light competition. Um, you know, ha continuing to have good results in Midwest Conference um, and then the National League is important because it shows that our clubs are ready for that level and gives them the opportunity to be accepted into those types of, of competitions as well. And then that will trickle down. You know, as you get to play that week in, week out, hopefully it helps build the clubs and they get better. And so we're able to, to, to create some of our clubs to be stronger, strong enough to compete at every age group on that instead of having a team at every age group from nine different clubs. I think that's one of our big problems is we have a lot of clubs and we don't have the population to support all of those clubs. Um, you know, I've talked about if you want to win at regionals, you need to put all your kids in one good club. I don't know that that's the right answer, you know, but you used to go to regionals and from Kentucky, only Javanon was ever there. You know, that was the only club you ever saw from Kentucky and it was clear they were the dominant one. You go from Iowa and you have 12 different clubs represented. I think that's a good thing. It means that, you know, our kids are all having a good chance to play. I mean, their state cup is competitive. Um, but, you know, there, there is some question. If you really want to create those elite teams, having multiple clubs represented at a, at a regional event is, is kind of a downside. 
Does Iowa soccer, especially the oldest age groups, does Iowa soccer have a role in that? Uh, I don't think so. Um, you know, our role is, is a member association. Um, and so, you know, we our, our role is in the ODP program to make sure we give those kids experiences. We make those kids better players and give them better experiences. And I think Ross is doing a good job with that. But I don't think we want to infringe on what the clubs are trying to do. I think that's a club responsibility. Um, certainly, if the clubs came together and said, here's what we want to do. We want to create, you know, a team at 16, 17, and 18, both boys and girls. And we want to create a, you know, a, a kind of a super team. And, you know, I'm sure we'd be willing to help mediate that and create that. But, you know, it's not our role to tell clubs how to, how to conduct their business um, that way. So I don't, I don't think that's really our role unless the clubs came to us and asked. Is there a way to change the, the structure of the competition to make, to funnel it in such a way? And I don't, I don't know the answer to this. I'm just wondering, you know, like we talk about uh, promotion relegation, like on a national scale. And I would guess uh, knowing you that like, if you're talking about uh, MLS and USL and all that stuff, in your, in Dan Cataldi's perfect world, it would be a promotion relegation system. Am I wrong about that? Uh, you know, I have a so I've just um, recently read a book called uh, Why the U.S. Men's National Team Will Never Win the World Cup um, by Bo Duray, and um, he talked a lot about that. I have a I have mixed feelings on promotion relegation. I don't know that that's the right answer, honestly. I think there's a lot of fun in it. Um, you know, I think the concept is good, but I'm not convinced that it's actually the right answer. Um, Economically, I, not the right answer, or because of competitively, not both, the right answer. Both. I think he, he made arguments in there that the you know that it doesn't necessarily, even when you look at other countries, it doesn't necessarily improve the competition, um, which was interesting. It actually, in a lot of cases, may take, um, you're better off, you know, one of the arguments I've is you're better off having an 18 playoff where you've got five teams fighting for that last spot versus only one or two teams fighting to avoid relegation because at the end of the season, more teams are playing more meaningful games. Whereas if you're relegated, you might only have two teams fighting for that, to, to avoid that last relegation spot. So, you know, the middle, you look at the EPL and, you know, the top four set, you know, so maybe you've got five or six teams playing for four spots and then you've got a middle like 10 or 12 that are really playing meaningless games almost at this point. Um, yeah, depending so on how a, the results shake out, you're right. I mean, right. You could end so, up at the end of the season where the last 10 games don't matter. Right. And so, you, you know, you're pretty well set as the number 12 team in the league. You're not going up, you're not going down. So it's an interesting concept. Um, you know, I think relegation would be a lot of fun. I, I, I would always support it, but I'm not convinced they'll actually make anything better. So I just wonder if sometimes in like the youth competitions, you know, like if there, we've had, I know in the past there were like sort of different tiers of league, mm -hmm. you know, and you, you, you could, but you essentially just brought your team forward and you said, I think my team is a, a top tier league or a top tier team. Or you'd say, I think we're maybe more of like a second tier team. Is there a way, like, does that maybe at, maybe through the younger ages, then as they get older, does it, does it get us to like, okay, well, there's really, four elite clubs and they should really be playing each other more often to be more competitive, to maybe get a little bit better overall. Yeah. And, and I think first there is the promotion relegation system kind of in the, in the regional leagues. Um, sure. So they have a premier one, premier two, and then down to kind of the tier below that. And they do move teams up and down based on performance. Um, you know, our league in Iowa is deliberately a, a developmental league, right or wrong. I know there's a lot of debate on whether there should be, you know, more competition there. Um, but based on what our clubs have repeatedly told us they want, um, you know, it's, it's formed out of a club, you know, the club's kind of built this league and we've taken it over, but it's really about development. So less about competition and more about getting kids the proper opportunity to play. So, 
you know, whether it's team A versus team B from one club and another club, um, the idea that is the coaches want the right matchup. They're, they're less interested in um, who won, who lost, and keeping standings and, and more interested in development opportunity for kids. So, so as long as we're in that format, it will be tough to ever implement anything like a promotion relegation. What's your opinion on this? This is a topic we uh, – since I'm sure, you've, like we said, you've listened to all our pods. You probably have heard us talk about this with college <laughs> coaches a lot. Um, but we just sort of asked this question of, um, you know, basically like competition versus development. Um, you know, is it better to have like, a, you know, to just always compete and be and, and try to win at all costs and not necessarily win at all costs, but to, okay, like if this team is um, possessing the ball and they're, you know, let's suck them in and leave a bunch of space behind them and, and then we counterattack them. Maybe they're better, but that's the way we beat them uh, versus like, you know what? let's just try and play out of the back against them anyway. And maybe they'll beat us, but it's okay. Cause we're trying to play the right, the, the right way, quote unquote, the right way. I, I, this is more just sort of a, an open topic that we, we talk about a lot. I mean, would just be curious what you think. You're going to um, get me in trouble. Well, it, this we, could do, be we, hit, we hit this subject every, every phone call or every interview. I think we talk about it. It, it weeds its way in, doesn't it? I think your personal opinion is, is, maybe even should be different than your professional opinion. So I'm not, you know, this is, uh, I'm just curious, you know, if you're coaching a team versus like if you're administering uh, 30,000 youth soccer players, like maybe there's a different feeling, no doubt, but just be curious. Yeah. Um, so a number of things. One, I don't claim to be an expert in this area. Um, you know, I know there's people that study this, uh, you know, directors of our technical directors of our clubs. Um, you know, there's a lot of research in this topic, obviously, and, and I don't claim to, to have read it all would be anywhere near the expert that others are. Um, I think a couple of things are true in this country as a whole. Um, I think we start competition way too young. I think we start organized sports and um, organized competition way too young. Uh, I think a lot of the research supports the idea that you don't need um, coaches and referees at five years old. You don't need tryouts at eight years old. Um, and other states do that. You know, I mean, I remember taking my son's team down to Kansas City and I think you know, we were U9 or U10, and we were playing a, a, essentially a select team that had been together for two years already from Arkansas or Indiana. I can't remember. You know, so other states are starting tryouts at like eight and nine. And I think, I think without question, that's too young. Um, and so I think, I think the answer is, um, the real answer is it's kind of an evolution. Um, early on, it's all about development. I mean, I coached in the academy. I coached my kid, you know, my son at five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, and we always did the same thing. We always wanted them to be on the ball, right? We wanted them to build out of the back. I didn't want them punting as a keeper, even though other teams would do it to us. Um, I once had a parent walk around. We were playing Iowa games. And the other team, and it was like it was 4v4 with no keepers. And the other team just stuck a kid down by our goal, and they just their whole goal was to kick it as hard as they could to him, and then he'd kick it in the goal. And the other coach and one of the parents walked around to me and said, why don't we do the same thing? We can score so many goals. And I was like, yeah, but who gets better, right? Like, it doesn't matter. You know, these kids are eight. Um, and we were playing and, you know, we weren't keeping score. It was, you know, you're just, you're not trying to advance. You're just playing games. So, um, so I think we're way too competitive at way too young an age. And this is coming from one guy, one of the guys who's the most competitive people you'll ever meet who spent my entire and total life trying to be less competitive and take sports. It's a hard thing to do, isn't it? It's, it's I have that problem my sometimes. Wife, my wife will tell you it's been really hard, you know, but now I can go out and play golf and be terrible and I, I'm okay with that. Um, but it's a, <laughs> a couple hard, of beers helps, doesn't it? <laughs> it does. <laughs> Um, but I, but I think on the flip side, I'm not convinced we give our kids in soccer enough opportunity to be competitive at the older ages. 
Um, you know, I, I appreciate the developmental league. I think there's a place for it, but I think it needs to be mixed in with a little more competition. And I, I think we see that. Um, I, I think when we see our kids in a fully competitive environment, uh, I noticed this with, with the kids, you know, on my son's team before he stopped playing. And I see it in other events when I go to regionals. On day one, we seem a little flat a lot of times compared to other teams. Um, and I remember seeing this very vividly last year with one of our teams at um, both at State Cup where they came out really flat on day one. Um, and then at regionals, they came out really flat. They might have been the best team in their bracket, but on day one, they lost the game because they, it, they didn't have that bite, that intensity early on. And I don't know if it's because their previous couple of games had been – you know, they'd been just come out of the ISL where they'd just been playing games, you know, that were developmental and didn't have that competitive drive. Um, or if it was, you know, just a bad day. And it could be either. I'm not attributing one or the other. But, you know, I, I question sometimes if we shouldn't do a little more of that competition at the upper ages um, to get them ready for some of the bigger events. Yeah, when I coached older age group teams, I found that um, during the fall, you know, like we just wouldn't have enough competitive games. And then when we would be in a situation where things were real, uh, we just, we weren't capable. And so no matter, no matter how hard you would try to give them a good game, um, until it like actually matters, they just, they just didn't get it. Um, and so I don't know, you know, again, I don't know that we can fix that. I just, it was just curious kind of what your opinion was. It sounds like we probably agree on it, which I wasn't necessarily expecting, but I like it. <laughs> Yeah, and, but I do think there's a huge difference to your point about my personal opinion and what we should be doing as an organization, which is where we take the input of our clubs and our clubs want developmental leagues without you know, standings. And so that's the way the experts in our state who are our clubs have decided is the best way to move forward. And they obviously know a lot more about their player development than I do. So I want to be clear that what I'm not saying is that we should change the ISL based on that concept because I think the input they've given us is, is important because they're the ones charged by parents with developing their kids, not me. That's Breaking fair. news. Fall 2020. <laughs> New ISL <laughs> guidelines. Released yeah, right, here first. Like, yeah. It's, we're changing everything today just on this on the spot. I don't care anybody else. Says. I love it. No, well, I let's, on that note, let's break some. Go ahead, Ben. No, you got other news? I, I want him to break some more news about a different subject though. So if you got something here, no, I, go I, ahead. I figured that was, that was going to be the segue. Cause we were just talking about like organized play versus not right. You know, just kind of letting kids uh, do their thing. And so we've been working on our mini pitch initiative. We wanted to just talk about facilities. Um, and we were just going to, well, so I just saw, yeah, I, I saw go, it like, today. Actually, actually today I saw, I was on trying to do some research and it popped up council bluffs has like a proper facility so i guess i don't know what involvement where have you been you guys have but i'm sure i'm sure you know way more about it so uh talk about that and then obviously like when are we uh when's the ribbon cutting over in west des moines yeah so um the council bluffs was really excited it, it, it is a full-size field um indoor uh kind of down and there some other of their sports areas um and council bluff soccer will run it we've obviously been involved uh, in talking with them and, and helping idea. We're hoping to you know, do some ODP training. We'll obviously try to put some programming there to support them. Um, you know, it's a great opportunity to maybe in the, in the winter, can we get kind of a border battle going with Nebraska? We're not there. We haven't even really talked about it. But, you know, that facility there is great for the Western side of the state because they've been lacking. Um, and so really excited to see that. You add that with you know, what we've got on the east side of the state with TBK and Burlington. Um, you know, and you've got kind of the, the two rivers are now covered. There's also some something coming in Sioux City um, as part of a city project. 
uh, that's going to have a essentially it's like a convention center, but it's going to have um, a soccer field as the base. So when there's no conventions, um, we expect to have opportunity there for some soccer. So then that brings us to the central Iowa area, which is kind of the the one place now that doesn't have um, kind of have the facilities we'd like. And so obviously the, the Mid American Recplex in West Des Moines is a huge thing. Um, that we're all very excited uh, to, to see move forward. Um, it's expected to open uh, targeting January 1, essentially. Um, the, we've had a perfect, you know, we joked earlier about how much spring usually is terrible. We wouldn't have missed a single play date this spring um, for ISL. I noticed that amazing. as we were going through the yeah, spring. We, we've, uh, we, we did track that, and there wasn't a single day we would have missed um, this entire spring, which is the first season in probably a million that that would be true. Um, so they've had good construction weather as well. Uh, so, you know, there, obviously the pandemic has caused maybe some, some issues with some materials that might come up, but, uh, you know, as, as far as, as far as I've heard from them, they're still on track for that January one opening. Uh, and so we're excited. We're going to do some programming there. We're going to move our coaches symposium there, which, um, has been, you know, really great the last couple of years at the event center, but being able to get it on an actual field is going to you know, really, uh, up the game of that event, uh, with, uh, you know, we, we laid down turf at the event center, but it wasn't ideal, and um, this will give us a better opportunity there. We're going to play some indoor championships there. We're going to do some adult leagues, uh, some regular adult leagues. Um, a lot of our clubs will tr do some training there. Uh, so, you know, having that open starting in January is going to be really, uh, you know, kind of a game changer for what we can do uh, in the winter months here in Iowa. And the other piece that we're excited about is it's also coming with three outdoor turf fields. Um, so it's not just going to have that indoor field, but in the spring, fall, summer, we'll be, have access to those three outdoor pitches to you know, their artificial turf. They'll be lit. So we can do a lot there as well that, you know, maybe will help um, reduce the number of rainouts we have because at least we'll have three reserve fields. We can move at least some of the games, especially when we have teams traveling. You know, there's nothing worse than a team traveling two, three hours um, to get over and then have the game rained out. So this would be allow us to maybe play more of those league games that are teams traveling from out of out of town, whether Cedar Rapids or Dubuque into Des Moines or Council Bluffs, so that they'd have much more of a higher likelihood of actually playing that game. Do you think that there will be any sort of like um, statewide leagues that all the different facilities would sort of participate in? Or is that something you guys have thought about doing? Uh, you know, um, I think we're, we're ways off there. Um, That's you know, probably I think, true. <laughs> you know, I think um, we hope to build some regular programming for youth and adult um, uh, at the RecFlex, um, as well as, uh, you know, we assume Council Bluffs will be doing the same thing. We do expect to do a lot of ODP training there, uh, maybe some ODP events um, with teams from not just Iowa, but, you know, having an indoor facility like we're going to have in West Des Moines, um, the opportunity to bring in ODP teams from surrounding states to play, you know, kind of a weekend event, uh, whether small-sided on small fields or, you know, full-sided si full on a full-size field. Um, you know, it's it was like we used to go to Lincoln us. to play in that a similar event there, right? Right. So we've already, you know, we've started to have those conversations. Could we do something like that? And uh, we are, you know, with TVK and the east side of the state, we're bringing an adult um, regional championship there next summer. So tournament champions will be played at that facility um, on the outdoor fields. Uh, but, you know, trying to utilize these great facilities we've got in different ways, um, not just by the clubs, but also by Iowa soccer. So something like that where we're going to bring in your Forts team. 14 state region and bring in several several adult teams um, to see that facility and we think people will come see that and uh, be really excited about returning there in the future for whether it be a winter event or, or summer events um, on their on their outdoor fields 
I think Dan, talk a little bit about uh, one that's pretty cool. I think actually. Um, yeah, it's awesome. You guys, yeah, Nick, you guys should promote that because I mean, I just I didn't know anything about it. Um, so that's pretty neat. Maybe um, they have been promoting. You're not paying attention. We yeah, Ben knows about it. We've talked about it. so that's uh, and I'll I'll talk about that real quick. Then the adult soccer stuff. You know, we've launched an adult state championship last year. Um, we, we plan to do it again this summer. We've had a date. We're pushing it back, um, but we do plan to run an adult state championship again this year, um, all in anticipation of hosting that tournament champion next year. Uh, it was supposed to be in Chicago this summer. It's already been canceled. So we were really hoping to get a team there this summer to kind of experience it, and you know, grow the excitement and get a lot of adult players back engaged in the event. Um, and so that's one of our, so next year within a month, we'll host that. And then we'll also host national president's cup um, out of County, which is also another major event we're excited about. This year it was supposed to be in Vegas, so that it's been canceled, which is disappointing because we were supposed to go observe. Um, so now don't get that trip out to Vegas to see how it works. But so next next summer we'll have two major uh, major events in Iowa within about a month of each other. So we're excited to host those. Cool. So uh, just talk a little bit about um, the programming the indoor facility. Um, obviously there's the reason why it's taken so long to get one built here in Des Moines, right? And the old one over in Johnston um, financially struggled. So just talk about how you guys, I'm assuming you guys are having to be kind of creative and uh, maybe innovative on how to make that work. And then um, and kind of how you see that going forward. Yeah. So, uh, you know, a couple things on that one, um, while we've been involved and, and been kind of consulting on this all along, um, it is West Des Moines facility. And so they control the, you know, they're, they're in charge of the revenue and um, making sure that that facility uh, you know, raises the amount of money it needs through programming. It's obviously a bigger, you know, it's a bigger deal than just a small indoor soccer field. You know, it's got the hockey rinks um, there. It's got multiple basketball courts. So there's a lot going on there outside of just the soccer and the field house. Um, so they're, you know, they're excited for all the possibilities, uh, but it doesn't have to, it's not going to rely just on soccer. Um, that'll be just a small piece of what's contributing to the revenue. Um, we have worked with all of our big clubs to identify how much time they would want to commit to running uh, for training. So we've provided that to West Des Moines so they can kind of have a sense and work out contracts with, with a lot of the clubs. Um, all, every club will have access to it. It's not while well, West Des Moines is running it. Every club uh, that's an Iowa soccer affiliate can reserve space there when they have open time. What we've asked for is some specific times that we're going to rent to run some of our programming, whether it be weekend events um, or our adult. We're really excited about what we're going to be able to do with the adult game because we think there's, that's an untapped need in, in central Iowa. Um, and so we're excited to have, you know, small-sided league games a couple nights a week, maybe one night a week of full-sized, um, you know, 11 v. 11 competition that we can play you know, throughout the winter. So we're look, really looking to grow that adult game, and that's been a lot of what we've been, been looking at. But then beyond that, you know, will we have 3v3 weekends, you know, all, all the different opportunities that are there, um, we're continuing to look. Um, but then we're also looking year-round with those three outdoor turf fields. What can we do in the spring, summer, fall um, that may be different than what we do now? What's the uh, concession situation out there, Dan? Is there a place well, to purchase uh, adult beverages after the game? Here. Yeah. <laughs> so there will be two concession stands. And my, as of last, the last report I had, they were planning to include beer in there. So that, that's been you – know, yeah, I think about that's it. a big one. You know, the adult soccer, being able to do it. But you got to remember hockey's out there, too, which includes adult <laughs> hockey. I guess so, we shouldn't worry about it. Then. Yeah, so I think it was. I think it might have been a non-starter for the hockey guys if there wasn't beer out there. So, 
Um, yeah, the idea is that there will be there'll be a concession stand that kind of faces the outdoor fields. Um, it can services those. I don't know whether that one will serve beer, but then there will be an indoor area that you know, will be able to overlook the soccer fields, hopefully, and and be a place where you can have a beer after a game. So if you come out for a nine o'clock game, you know, maybe we're playing through midnight on a Thursday night. You, know, you can come out, you play at nine, and then sit around have a beer with with your team and watch, you know, heckle some of the other teams. That's great. Are there still is there still space to put more turf fields, or outside. does that get scratched? Or yeah, yeah. So Sorry, we, this yep. has been this has been kind of an evolution. Um, the original plan was for five outdoor grass fields. Uh, you know, we as Iowa Soccer listened to our clubs and our what we needed, and we said we'd rather have fewer fields that are turf and lit um, rather than more outdoor fields. Because you know, while there's a need for outdoor good outdoor fields you know, day in, day out use. We don't know how many clubs are going to try, you know, drive over there to train. How many games are we going to schedule with other facilities? Uh, where, where this community, and I think we can all agree, really has a need in facilities is, is artificial turf. Um, yes. So, so our, our pitch to them was really let's, let's reduce the number of fields. We'd rather have one artificial turf lit, nice field than five grass. Um, and yes. so, so they've been able to get some donations and some funding to support that. And, you know, we're up to, um, and the plan right now is really to build it out into three artificial turf fields. Um, and that would kind of be the limit. There is a place where they could expand two more in the future to get up to five. Uh, but right now they're, they're planning just to grade and build three. And I will say if there's any construction overhead, anything like that, the outdoor turf fields are one of the first places where they'll cut back because they're easy to add later. Obviously you can't just add a roof later. So, um, right now, though, we're on track for that three, for those full three artificial turf. And what we've told them is if you do the three outdoor and the one indoor, four turf fields is really an ideal number to run events. Uh, you know, as you start to think about it, three fields gets tricky when you have four. It allows you to get, you know, eight teams going, so groups of four all playing at the same yeah. time, stuff like that. So four is really a magic number that we're hoping we can get to. That's really exciting. Yeah. I don't know. I just got one last one for you, Dan. So um, I don't know if Ben, but – Give us your challenges. Um, you've been in a year and a half, and then like, how can the soccer community help? But what are you? What are the challenges that you and the state is um, kind of encountering outside of obviously where we're at with the pandemic? Yeah, well, obviously that's the big one now. It's just survival for the next couple of months, um, trying to figure out how we retain players. But I think you know, on a bigger scale, we'll, we'll assume the pandemic never happened. Um, the challenges are, are, you know, the same as a lot of other areas. It's how do we get more kids to play? You know, we've been pretty stagnant. Soccer had an explosive growth, but it's been pretty stagnant the last, you know, many years, probably eight to 10 years, a fairly stagnant number. Um, you know, a little bit of growth, a little bit of decline, uh, but really no movement either way, which is good. It means we're not losing kids, uh, you know, but how do we grow the game? How do we get more kids out wanting to play? And then when they do come out to play at, you know, six, seven, eight, nine years old, how do we keep those kids playing? whether select or rec, you know, I, I would, I love to see, um, you know, 15 year old rec teams, right. Cause it means those kids are just out there for fun. They have no aspirations of traveling or anything else, but you know, that's a, that's a market where we'd certainly love to see more kids out there running around when they're 14, 15, even if they're not playing high level competitive soccer. Um, so I think that's, you know, one of the biggest challenges is, you know, how do we, how do we grow the game in, in, in Iowa? And I think that's a struggle for, for our clubs. It's a struggle for us and certainly something we need to figure out. Um, and then the other one is how do we keep the costs in line? You know, expenses are going up every day. Cities are charging more for fields. Insurance costs go up. Um, and, and especially now where we know there's a lot of issues, um, you know, as an association, we've been tapping into our reserves 
um, because we wanted to invest back in, in different things. And so how do we keep the cost in line, uh, both club-wise, you know, when you talk about travel, you know, it's expensive to play. You know, my son played and traveled, and, you know, you go to four tournaments a year out of town that include hotel nights, and that doesn't even include the cost of the, the clubs to play. So how do we how do we mitigate that, whether it's offsetting actual you know, registration costs um, for players, you know, what, what are the ways we can do that? And I think that's a challenge I'm, I'm trying to tackle and figure out, is there a way we can reduce the cost of clubs across the state? But I think those are the two big ones. Let's get more kids playing and let's keep the cost reasonable. Sounds about right. Uh, I, got, I have an answer to the first one. Yeah, I have an answer to the first one. I don't know about the second one, though. What's the, first, what's the answer to the first one, Blake? Well, I mean, just throw mini pitches up everywhere you can and <laughs> let them play. It's a great initiative. I mean, that's really exciting <laughs> to see those things pop up. And I know we've talked even about, you know, in West Des Moines, you know, around the Recplex trying to get one. But if not there, I know there's other sites that, that maybe would be excited to have them. So that's certainly, you know, certainly something that I've told you guys that we'd love to be a part of, you know, being involved in doing what we can with those. Yeah, but yeah, I mean, like I said, the second one, though, and all more serious, no, yeah, it's um, – and there's really no end in sight either. You know, like there's a cost. I mean, you talk about in all aspects, like college tuition continues to increase. Like, um, uh, yeah, like everything's going to be solved overnight. Increase. I think it'll be, yeah. you and I have talked about this too before, Dan, just the, the, the big divide between, you know, club soccer and high school soccer. And we don't need to necessarily get into that. But I think from a financial standpoint, the interesting part is that, you know, obviously high school soccer is a lower cost. Absolutely. So when you talk about like, age 14 to you know 18 of kids that are maybe playing a little bit more casually for fun um high school soccer a lot of times kind of fits that that bill but mm -hmm. you know i it just it's, it still messes everything else up so <laughs> i just i don't know i don't know how you fix it but i the, that to me is like one of the biggest uh gaps that we have as a state is just that's how we've done it it's nobody's fault uh but I don't know how you fix it. Yeah, the, the, especially for the boys, the spring high school season really throws off uh, the opportunity for some of that interstate competition, um, you know, with all the other states playing fall. Um, but, well, I think it would just, it might increase participation too, as a result. Yeah, it very well could um, when you're not competing against some of the other things. It's, you know, it's it obviously, I, I, I'm a big supporter of high school soccer. I think it's, a, you know, it's, it's obviously not the, place where you're going to learn to be an you know an elite player but just True. the ex, just the experience of high school I mean I remember in high school playing in front of big crowds and, you know I go to games now I referee I mean a referee you know and, and you'd go and referee the state championship and you know there'd be hundreds of kids in there and the atmosphere was you know just it was better than anything you could do on the club level the play wasn't necessarily better although at the state championship level those kids could play I mean all those kids were you know club level players they weren't you know they're so the quality was pretty good, um, you know, not necessarily as good as the state finals, state, you know, club state finals, but you know, it was it was high quality. But the crowd was so intense and so much fun that just one of those experiences you don't want to ask kids to give up. You just want to figure out how can you balance getting those kids the the training they need with that experience of those games because those are you know you don't remember your training sessions, but you're going to remember some of those high school games you played, some of those big rivalry games, Johnson, Irvindale, Valley Dowling. You know, it was, a great, it was just great to be a part of. Yeah. And I guess, I mean, that's kind of the ultimate uh, goal of all this is trying to strike a balance between, uh, you know, everything we've talked about, you know, whether it's development and competition, um, you know, we're talking about the facilities, it's balancing 
the size of facilities and the different types of facilities. And I mean, we're talking about balancing the pandemic. Holy smokes. <laughs> Just a little thing. <laughs> well, um, I know we've really appreciated your time tonight. We know we could probably uh, grill you for a little bit longer, but do you have anything more, Blake? Yeah. I mean, we didn't No, I just say like, like we'll have to, this opens up uh, part two down the road because like we, like you said, we didn't even touch on high school and like, that would be just uh, like, that's a whole other, I mean, you can talk for hours on that as well, but no, I don't, I uh, like Ben said, I, I appreciate it. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And hopefully, I mean, I think it, it gives you guys or you and Iowa soccer a good opportunity to talk about what you guys are doing and get it out there. Cause um, as much as maybe you send an email every week or whatever, I think the, the level that you explain stuff and the way that you talk about it, I think really um, belies the passion you have for it and what you guys are trying to do. I appreciate that. We're always, we're always trying to do what's right for the kids. And I, I mean, just today I was having a conversation with a couple of people on the team is, you know, in all these questions, what's best for the kids. Um, and that's really our role is BU soccer um, organization in Iowa. And so definitely keep the focus there and, and always willing to take ideas as to how we could be better. Well, we will, uh, we'll bring you back to give you some good ideas then. Oh, perfect. <laughs> well, thanks again, Dan, and good luck with thanks, uh, hearing them. negotiating yeah, thank the rest of the pandemic. <laughs> Hopefully we're on the downside. Hopefully we're back in a month and, you know, July 6th, we're back in the field and everybody's, you know, all the kids are back to doing what they want to do. So. Cool. Well, we'll see you out there. All right. Thanks, guys. Appreciate it. Thanks, Dan. All right, Blake, that was fun. I think we are actually recording this time, so uh, good save on that last time I started to talk without recording. That's what I'm here for, Ben. Teamwork makes the dream work, Siebs. Uh Really enjoyed that conversation, though, with Dan. Yeah, it was fun, um, interesting, and hopefully it gives our listeners kind of some of the reasons why the state makes the decisions and runs things the way they do. Um, you know, hopefully they or he found it beneficial to kind of elaborate on a few things. Um, and ultimately, he's always in a tough position, right? Because not a lot of uh, times they can do things right. It's easy to complain about things. Um, I was going to say he has a thankless job. Out. Yeah, as we found out, I mean, there's a lot of questions and we don't have answers, right? I mean, more than once we asked a question, it was like, I don't know what the answer is, but here's the question. Yeah. Um, yeah, we, it, it's easy to identify all the problems for sure. But yep. coming up with solutions is going to be a little more difficult. I, I think uh, we're in a good place, though, hopefully over the next few years to kind of change some things. Absolutely. Um, well, so maybe before we... Uh, take everybody out just remind uh our our listenership where they can uh, they can find us blake yeah so we're on facebook at kick it forward ia we are on twitter at kick underscore forward we are on insta at kick dot it dot forward we have a youtube page if you search kick it forward um, we have a TikTok account that is not very active. Um, that's at kick.it.forward. And then the last, uh, last piece of big news, Ben, is the, the Pleasant Hill mini pitch. I think we should plug here if anybody's listening. That's right. Yeah, and that goes back to the, uh, the, the big question that I think the answer is no, no one is listening at the end of the episode, unfortunately. 
<laughs> I, I've only had one comment well, on my guitar playing. So it was either really bad or uh, one person knew that it happened. And I also think that uh, there were no DMs slid into, were there, Blake? There were not. So should we just end it now? We might as well. Uh, we know Matt Ream is still listening. So hi, Matt. Thanks for listening all the way to the end. Hope you're doing well and uh, recovering from your emergency appendectomy. Uh, cheers. Thank mm -hmm. you.